Grace and peace, uh, beloved friends. Uh, glad you're with us for another episode of Your Week with St. Luke's. This is week four. We're talking about uh, My Story Matters 2. We've been doing the from, through, and to, and this is the two. And we're joined by Dr. Evie Arnold as she brings a lecture, and then, then later uh, with Dr. Karen Scheib. So uh, let's dive into things. Hello, friends. And welcome to our fourth and final week as we study the book of Job, a resurrection story. We've been together as we have seen how God has moved Job from certain things, through certain things, and now to certain things. We looked at how God moved Job from the voices of others around him and their opinions to where Job could find his own voice to tell his own story. Last week, we looked at how God moves Job through the dark tunnel of loneliness and unanswered questions, and that dark tunnel just may be a mine that holds unexpected treasure. Finally, today, we talk about how God moves Job to a place of authentic relationship. Let's not forget that just because Job was righteous and innocent of wrongdoing, does not mean that he had nothing he could learn. Today, our story will take place in three parts. First, we will look at the last several chapters of Job, chapters 38 through 41, where we look at the relationship, the authentic relationship between God and creation, as God tells it. After that, we look at the relationship between God and Job, in chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. And then finally, how all of this impacts Job's relationship with others around him, his family and friends, in the final verses of Job. And then as always, we conclude by looking at the parallel in the life of Jesus and where God moves him to as well. In chapters 38 through 41, God answers Job from a whirlwind. Now, this comes after Job has demanded an answer from God, has summoned him to give a response. Why has all of this calamity befallen him and his family? Why, when he has been righteous and faithful? Why, when it seems that God is not present in the darkness, that God has even abandoned him? God oddly, does not respond to any of Job's questions whatsoever. God does not mention the wager that he made with Satan in the first couple chapters of the book. God does not give any kind of a response or even a comfort for anything that Job has gone through. All God does is ask a string of rhetorical questions that delineate the mystery of God's work in creation. He asks Job, is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? In this way, God is saying that there is a mysterious relationship that only God and his creation know and a way that he relates to his creation that only he can know. That further asks the question, 
What is the relationship between God and his interaction with creation? God says, has the reign of father or who has begotten the drops of dew and from whose womb did the ice come forth? That leads us to so many questions. If God is the the parent, the mother and the father of the ice and the rain, what happens when a rain brings a flood? What happens when ice brings death? Is that God's doing? That's the part that's so hard to know. God is at once present as creator, but how he interacts with that creation is such a mystery. God says to Job, do you know where the mountain goat goes to give birth? But it doesn't say that God intervenes in those births. Does God help each and every goat mother as she gives birth? It doesn't say so, that there's this very blurry line between God's knowledge of his creation and how God actually intervenes and interacts with it. And that that relationship, that authentic relationship, is very mysterious. What I think is interesting is that this particular perspective from God actually helps Job to shift from his very narrow personal focus to a broader perspective based on this mysterious understanding of God's relationship with creation. In fact, Job can only respond after God is done telling this story of creation, I know that you can do all things. Now, it's not that it was bad in any way for Job to focus, to have this myopic view of his life when his life was in utter shambles. But because he honored his utter shambles and cried out to God and walked through the darkness and left behind the other voices, now when God offers him this wide view of creation as some kind of explanation For Job's own circumstances, Job is able to embrace this broader perspective and able to say, I know that God can do all things. And it's actually from this discussion between God and Job about creation that we move into the relationship between God and Job. God says this, In chapter 42, verses 7 and 8. In fact, he says it twice. He says to Job's friends, My servant Job has spoken rightly of me. Now, that's a very interesting thing to say because, first of all, Job has said a lot of things about God throughout this entire book. Things like, You have crushed me, you have abandoned me, you don't make any sense. You, you poured out blessings on me, and then you took them away, and you're the creator, but you also uh, bring death. You're the God of light and darkness. Job has said a lot about God, and yet God says, my servant Job has spoken rightly of me. Perhaps God means this wide variety captures the essence of God, that God is mysterious, And that God is also present through and in all of these circumstances, both good and bad. And the way that God operates in those is still a mystery. 
Second, Job has not only said a lot about God, he said a lot to God. He has had no problem telling God that he needs to show up and give an explanation. He has said a lot to God about how he thinks about his life, his friends, the world, the lack of justice that happens in the world. All of this, my servant Job has spoken rightly of me. And I wonder how much of that he has spoken rightly of me means that he never stopped speaking to me. Even when Job was at his lowest, even when he accused God of not being there, when he accused God of taking away his blessings and of trying to crush his whole entire being, he never stopped calling out. And so I wonder if it's the fact that he continued to speak is what made him speak rightly of God. That God wants to receive whatever we have to give, regardless of how it sounds. And I think that there's a way that the writer of Job lets us know this, because the Lord says to Job in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Anyone who argues with God must respond. This is after God has asked him all these rhetorical questions. He knows that Job won't be able to respond. And yet, he is designating in some way that Job is worth the reply. Job has called God to account, and God actually has shown up and deems Job the one who argues with God. And I think that is very important. Job's argument with God and including the fact that the argument has no resolution, moves Job from the realm of what we might call transaction to relationship. See, a transactional view of God and Job is very much like what we see in Deuteronomy 28, like we discussed a few weeks before. The quid pro quo of if one is obedient... God rewards you. If one is disobedient, God punishes you. And so in this sense, each interaction is a transaction. I give God proper worship. God gives me proper blessings. The the problem is those types of transactions don't cover the mystery of relationship. Because relationship is never based on quid pro quo. Now, to be sure, there's a certain amount of reciprocity in relationships of give and take, but it doesn't look like 50-50. It's more like both giving 100%. I'll show you what I mean by this. When we think back to the beginning of Job, this is how the writer describes Job and his relationship with his children. There were born to Job seven sons and three daughters, and his sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their sisters to come eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, 
It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. Now, I am not saying that there is anything wrong with what Job is doing. Job understands, rightly so, that there is a certain amount of uh, times when there is a correlation between obedience and blessing, and that he wants to be a good and faithful servant of God and a good and faithful parent. But notice how the attempt is being made to bring things to an equilibrium. My children might have cursed God. I'm going to offer this sacrifice and I will bring things to a proper balance so that no one will be hurt, so that God will not be dishonored and so my children will not be punished. And it said that this is what Job always did. This was his modus operandi, his way of operating. And that's a very transactional view of the way God works. And I don't think that this is taking uh, too many liberties with this because the whole rest of the book is about, I've done the right thing, so why are these bad things happening to me? Clearly, there was a correlation understood between Job's good behavior and Job's good life. Now, this is what's very interesting. God responds to Job by saying this in chapter 40, verse 8, will you condemn me that you may be justified? That's very interesting. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? See, this transactional way of understanding interactions between God and Job made it look less like a relationship of two parties loving and considering each other, and more like a zero-sum game. Meaning that if Job was being punished and he was innocent, if bad things were happening to Job and he was being righteous, then God is in the wrong. Whereas on the other hand, Job's friends were saying, well, clearly God is never in the wrong, so if you're having calamities, you're in the wrong there, was, there is a tendency to, to, to see that we have to make sure that if something goes wrong, someone else is to blame. Now, it doesn't say that Job did this, but God says, will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or is there another way to go about this? Do we need to condemn that we may be justified? Do we need to make sure that that wrongs have been righted? Or do we need to just make sure that we do the right out of love? And I think that there's a very interesting correspondence at the end of Job that answers this. Now remember, at the beginning of Job, Job was blessed with seven sons and three daughters. And he offered sacrifices for them whenever they got together in case they had misbehaved. But at the end of Job... In chapter 42, verses 13 through 15, the author tells us Job also had seven sons and three daughters. So he has just what he had before, but it doesn't narrate him offering sin offerings in case they had done something wrong. On the contrary, it says that he had these three daughters, and we've talked about them before, and it said not only were they so beautiful— 
but their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, this is really interesting and very unique in this particular time period in human history for a woman to receive an inheritance along with her brothers. Now, what the author of Job could have done is could have bookended the seven sons and three daughters at the beginning and the seven sons and three daughters at the end and sin offerings for the first 10 and a sin offering for the second 10. But in place of the sin offering that Job offered at the beginning, he gives an extra blessing. He gives these three daughters of his an inheritance. Rather than seeing a transaction, I want to appease God so that God will keep my children safe. Job now understands that relationship works only when it comes out of an authentic place. And so the best way to to keep his children safe, the best way to show them love is not to try to cancel out anything bad, but to give more good. It's also very interesting when we look at some of the other righteous acts that Job does throughout the book, or that he at least narrates that he does throughout the book. There's three particular uh, areas where Job talks about the things that he has done that he knows he's been faithful to do as God would have him do. The first area is in regards to his money. In fact, he says this in chapter 29, verses 1 through 5 and 11 through 16. Oh, that I were in the months of old, in the days that God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head and by his light I walked through darkness, when I was in my prime and when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was still with me and when my children were around me, when the ear heard it, it commended me. And when the eye saw it, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the wretched came to me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I championed the cause of the stranger. If I have withheld anything from the poor that they desired— or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel of food alone, and the orphan has not also eaten from it. For from my youth I reared the orphan like a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. And if I have seen anyone perish for lack of covering, whose loins have not blessed me, and who was not warmed by the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the orphan because I saw I had supporters at the gate— Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Even here, when Job is talking about his covenant faithfulness to provide for the poor and the widow and the orphan, it is because he understands the judgment of God If he does not, he says, for I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Now, there is nothing wrong with doing good things because one does not want to face the judgment of God. I feel like that's actually a 
usually a decent way to live your life. But that is not the fullest way to understand authentic relationship with God. Job, of course, the book says, was righteous and was innocent at the beginning. He wasn't lacking or bad. But here at the end, we see him move into a different and we might say a fuller understanding. It may not be that God causes things to happen, or as we see in Job's case, allows things to happen. But perhaps it's also that God doesn't waste an opportunity for someone to see something that they didn't see previously. And here's why. Because after we see Job's fortunes begin to be restored, after his friends, God tells his friends, you haven't spoken rightly of me like my servant Job has, Job's family and friends return. And what's really interesting is what they give him. Each of them give him a piece of money and a gold ring. See, when Job was giving to the poor and doing those good things that he should be, he was always the one doing the giving. He was always participating in this transaction that said, if I give, then God gives to me. What he hadn't been part of was receiving from others, being the recipient. And we'll see that with two other things as well. Job says in chapter 29, verses 24 through 25, I smiled on the people when they had no confidence, and the light of my countenance they did not extinguish. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, as one who comforts mourners. Job said that when he was doing all of his acts of covenant faithfulness, he brightened people's lives. He comforted them when they mourned. And then when his family comes back to him, it says they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And then finally, Job says in chapter 29, verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me, and my justice was like a robe and turban. Justice, doing the right thing for the right reasons and acting nobly on behalf of other people, well, that was something that Job did so often he practically wore it as a coat. It was his signature move. And yet here, at the end, when his family comes back to him, they're comforting him for the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And it says they ate bread with him in his house. This is the same Job who said in chapter 3, sorrow is my daily bread. So Job had given food to the hungry and provided for the needy. And now justice returns to him. In all of these ways, Job becomes the recipient. He is allowed to receive in a way that makes him reliant on others. Not always as the one who gives and is therefore always the benefactor. And so we can see how this is 
Job coming into relationship, a more authentic relationship with others. He is no longer always the provider, no longer always the giver, except he does have a bit that he can give. When Job finally finishes his dialogue with God and God is finished explaining how marvelous his creation is, God says to Job's friends, you have not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has, and you should offer a sin offering. But you know what? Even if you offer this offering, I won't accept it unless Job prays for you. And it said that Job did, which is interesting because Job has told his friends what miserable comforters they are and how that when one turns one's back on a friend or when one blames someone, that they actually forsake the Almighty. So what's very interesting and poetically just here is that in learning to move from transaction to authentic relationship, Job forgives his friends. He indeed prays for them, even though they've spent the whole book chewing him out over his supposed sins. And he turns from speaking on his own behalf to God to speaking on behalf of his friends. Yes, the friends who got it wrong, but the friends who sat with him in the mystery of sorrow nonetheless. So it seems that Job isn't just resurrected into a new life where he has children again, where his family and friends come back to him. But it seems even that Job's understanding of what an authentic relationship with himself, with God, God's and creation, and with his family and friends, what that looks like. Again, as we always conclude this way, we can see a parallel in Jesus' story in the New Testament. As you know, we talked about how Jesus had to move from the voices of even his own family and friends, his disciples, and the crowds that followed him, and find his own voice, his own voice that said that he was destined to be a crucified Messiah. We saw then last week, Jesus had to go through the darkness and the loneliness on the cross, wondering where God was and why he had abandoned him then. And so we can also see Jesus move into a new understanding of the relationship between him and God and between him and his disciples. This is what Peter tells us in the Acts of the Apostles when he preaches on the day of Pentecost. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here we see uh, the relationship between the relationship of Jesus and God and Jesus and his disciples. Peter says, God raised this Jesus up and now he's in a new relationship with God. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. 
meaning that he is equal with God and that he is close to God. He has the ear of God. He is indispensable to God and is indistinguishable from God and has received the Holy Spirit from God. So in every way, Jesus's relationship with God has come into an even fuller expression than what had been seen before in the Gospels. And then in turn, that understanding of relationship Jesus shares with his disciples because Peter says he has poured out this on us that you both see and hear. Anytime someone moves into a fuller understanding of relationship rather than transaction, that can't help but spill over into the other relationships where it's not that anyone gives enough to meet someone halfway, but when both can go a hundred percent in. And that's what Jesus and God share. And that's what Jesus offers to his followers, to his disciples. And now to us, the church, we have had the spirit poured out on us completely and fully the fullest expression of the relationship between God and his church present with us always. I'm so curious to hear about what you've thought about this entire study and what we've talked about today. Where have you been invited to see a fuller understanding of relationship? And maybe when has it even been startling to realize that what you had thought was relationship was transaction? Praise God that he has called us into a full and authentic relationship with himself and with each other. Thank you for sharing this time with me. Um, Be blessed, and we look forward to further studies in the future. Bye. Well, welcome everyone to the second portion of our This Week at St. Luke's podcast. Uh, this is our office hours conversation. And now that we've had this this uh, this lecture from Dr. Eby uh, about the last portion of Job, we want to transition to uh, continue the conversation with Dr. Karen Scheib, uh, who is here with us um, to talk about um, story and finishing up talking about story and revising uh, and, and re-storying. Uh, which uh, is hard for me to say. Uh, so welcome, uh, Dr. Scheib. We're glad to have you back with us again. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. You've been such a blessing and uh, uh, our congregation and friends and family have really enjoyed uh, this time. So it's been really enriching. So so we've been talking these last few weeks uh, about how uh, we both write and revise uh, the stories of our lives. And it, and it seems like, are we doing this at the same time or are these different portions that these happen at different times in our lives? Well, we're, we're, we are doing both at the same time. On the one hand, as new experiences happen, we're creating new stories about that and we learn new things or meet new people. We create stories about that. This is particularly true if you have some something you've never experienced before. So for example, I am forming myself uh, a story of myself as a person who plays pickleball, which I'd never heard of until I moved to where I am now. Right. So that's an entirely new story. <laughs> I, yeah, I've never really been an athlete, let alone a pickleball player. Um, on the other hand, we're also engaged in ongoing processes of revision. And 
this happens naturally over the life course as well. So I'm no longer teaching full time. So I'm revising my sense of my vocation and who I am at this point in my life. It's both a new story of retirement, but an ongoing story of of how I will live out my vocation as a pastor and teacher. Yes. And that's so powerful and poignant um, for a lot of people in this country right now, but especially a lot of people in our community uh, where there are people who are retiring, but there's also a lot of people who have had to change vocations. There are people who were actors and dancers and people who um, mm-hmm. work in parks and, and now they're finding a, a new vocation, new way to make a living. So that, that makes sense, that ongoing process of, of revision. You know, it also makes me think about the powerful conversation you had with Pastor Melissa on week two, where you talked about uh, revising, challenging, and and especially for me, what hit me was the confining stories, those stories either about ourselves or those stories about God, uh, when the ones we have been telling ourselves no longer, they no longer fit, they no longer work. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so there there really are two different kinds of revision if you if you want to think about it that way. One is the sort of normal process of revision as our, we age and new things happen to us, and that often goes on as sort of outside of our conscious awareness. Um, the other is what we were talking about before is a very intentional and necessary revision because the story we lived doesn't work anymore. So we did talk about that, how and that it's kind of an abrupt change. So we're sort of forced into revision. But many times the revision is sort of outside of our awareness. Um, but we just as we age, we we look at things differently. Um you know, the content of our story doesn't change, but I might understand myself now at, well, I'll be 67. Is that right? Yeah, 67 <laughs> on Sunday. I have a different understanding of myself and of life. And, and I would say how the church works than I did at 25 when I first went into ministry. Yeah. So. Yeah. Maybe some things I wish I hadn't learned, but you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> I wish I would have known this 20 years ago, kind of. Right, thing. right. <laughs> no, I've experienced a lot of that. Like, oh, I wish I would have, or if I could go back in time and and tell a younger version of myself, you know, um, you know, don't don't make that mistake. Don't do this. Yeah. Well, one of the ways our stories change is that um um how we view ourselves and how we view our parents. So that's an example of another sort of subtle change, a kind of natural change in story. And as we get older, we may come to know our parents more as complete human beings and not just mom and dad. For one thing, they may tell us stories when we're adults that they didn't tell us when we're children. And I know you have children, I don't. But my guess is, is that you might have a different appreciation of your parents and the choices they made and why they did things now that you're a parent than when you were a kid or a teenager. So that's that sort of ongoing natural part of the restoring or revision process. Restoring is a term that that William Randall uses. And it's it's I like it. Even revision is another way to think about that. Well, I, I like the term restoring. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, I get caught saying restoring. Like, no, it's restoring. It's it's um, <laughs> it's there's this story, and it's how do we tell it in a, in a in a deeper, more profound way, or in a way that 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 come with this new light that comes, uh, mm-hmm. like you said, from experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's a helpful term for me as I think about where I'm in my state of life. My, my eldest, um, he's graduated from high school and um, preparing to move on in adulthood. And that's just scary. And okay, how did I learn to do that? What did my parents tell me? And mm-hmm. what was uh, important about that? And so this, this restoring 
um, I, I, is a helpful process for me, just even in my parenting, uh, but then also in, in my pastoring, how I'm interacting with people. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas some some stories need to be restoried, that mm -hmm. I need to examine them and learn from well, them. And what you're pointing to is that the way that we experience um, this process of restoring is sort of revising how we understood the past, but in many ways it also changes our behavior in the present, right? Because we have a new understanding of the past. So we see the present differently. Um, and, you know, we may then, as you sort of think about what it means to be a parent and how you did it in the past, you have to do a little differently now. So that it's a, so there's a connection between our past stories and our present stories, but also our future stories, right? What we expect, as you said, for what you expect for your kids or what's going to come next in this phase of life. Yeah. I mean, um, and that's, that's a lot of this framework where we've been using throughout this, this sermon series as we're looking at Job as we're working with you about story and, and, and how to understand ourselves that, um, the, the, the framework of from, through, and, and to mm -hmm. is a large part of, of that, you know, mm -hmm. what was my story as I'm moving from that, that's part of that re restoring. Uh, and I think that that through experience helps us uh, in that rewriting and that restoring mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. brings us to, to the new place of where, where we are now. Um, does this mean we, we form stories not only from the past and present, but also the future? Yeah, yeah. And Andy Lester talks about this as future stories. I think you might have actually read that book back when you were a student of mine. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I won't test you on it. Don't worry. Um, but he does talk about that. It's not just that we have expectations of the future. We really create sort of stories of what's going to happen, right? Where we're going to and what is going to happen next. Um, and I mean, that's one of the things I, you know, I tried to sort of plan my retirement and I found out I couldn't really do that, but I had expectations of what that would look like. Um, and unfortunately, COVID hit in the middle of my, well, as I was retiring. So in the in my middle of my last semester, I wasn't expecting to teach online. I moved sooner than I thought I would. And I think a lot of us have experienced this loss of the future story we anticipated because of the interruption of COVID. Yes. And, you know, in March of last year, most parents didn't expect they'd be working from home and being teachers and, other, and overseeing their children's online education at the same time. Most pastors didn't anticipate preaching by Zoom or from your living room or an empty sanctuary. We no one expected drive through communion. So so this new future sort of burst onto us that we weren't expecting. And the problem is, is that when the future story changes like that, it's a real loss uh, because we, we we think the story we're living is going to unfold in a particular way or it's a continuation of the present. So, um, yeah, so lots of interruptions. And I think I, it is a real loss. And I think... Um, it's important for us to grieve that. Um, and then because that grieving allows us to step into, to this new, new future, uh, allows us to see the possibilities of what may be. I remember, um, five months into the pandemic, uh, us having some deep conversations about, okay, like we, we've been saying when things go back to normal, but 
what do we want that normal to be? Um, we, this is restoring. How can we think about a new normal from the things that we've learned from this, this pandemic, um, from all these new skills we had to learn. Uh, And I think, but I think some of that comes with, with mourning the future that was lost and, and helping us reimagine, um, the future that comes, you know, so, so many things. Um, we expected to happen didn't happen. Um, yeah, well, and I do think we do, we have to grieve because I think we don't, it, it's just if we don't, it's, Lester argues that the loss of the future story is a loss we often don't recognize. We don't sort of name it as a loss the, of things we expected to happen. I think that was more poignant this year because it was so clear. I don't know if you, your son graduated from high school this year, but there were no graduations. There were no rites of passage. There were no, you know, retirement parties. The weddings were postponed. So even though people did things and moved on, those rituals that help us sort of move from the present into the future, we lost a lot of those. And so I think it's important that we um, that we grieve the loss and don't deny that. But we can, as you said, um, think about as we think about how we want to form the future. Again, we can pull on the past in the sense of how have I dealt with difficulty before? None of us has been a pandemic, but we've had other kinds of losses. We've had others, maybe perhaps unexpected changes. So we can strengthen the stories of our competencies and our flexibility and the way we're helping each other. So as you said, that helps us think about where we're going to in a future where we assist each other to come to terms with this uncertainty. We can remind ourselves that though COVID dominates the news, it's not the only story. We still have stories of our families and our children and loving each other and the beauty of nature. I just saw an osprey drive and dive into the lagoon outside my window a minute ago. So there are other stories of life and of of flourishing that are around us, even in the midst of this difficult time. Yeah. So uh, how do we handle all of these conflicting and, and changing stories? Um, what do we do with them? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I think I think so for the one thing is beginning to pay attention to them. So oftentimes, you know, when when you read a book, you know you're reading a story. When you're living your life, you're living your life. You don't think about is constructing a story. But we can learn to be better, in a sense, readers of our life stories and interpreters of them by paying attention to them. So just as In Bible study, you do an exegesis of a text, right? Exegesis simply means a close reading. So you look at how the story was formed and the context in which it was formed. And um, you look at the multiple meanings of the story. And we can do the same thing um, with our life stories. We can read them more closely, uh, just as we do a text. Um, We can pay attention to the backstory. How did I get to this point in my life? We can notice the context or the environment that shapes the story. We can challenge the problem stories and 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 look at the various story strands that compose our bigger life story. As I said, that it's not simply dominated by COVID. There are other things going on, um, and we can. This includes attending to our stories of competence and resilience and supportive community. Hmm. Uh, those are, um, I wish we had more time to dive into each of those pieces because the, um, Dr. Becky Bailey, who is a developmental psychologist, uh, talks a lot about the power of noticing and, and, and that's Mm -hmm. more in in developmental 
um, environments, but I've noticed in applying some of those skills in my interaction with other people, mm-hmm. um, it, it, there, there's power in noticing. And so then how do we, then you're talking about then applying this to, to ourselves, right? Well, and the other thing is that as Christians, that we can ground our hope in the future, not just on what we do, but what God is doing. That God is sort of moving the future toward us and that we're going to what we're going to is a God's vision of flourishing. That's what I like to think about. And I think it's an open ended future. You know, in the book of Job, we know eventually his life is restored, but it's still very open ended. And what that's going to look like, we don't know. So I think that as we. You know, the good news is, is that just as Job sort of was able to revise his story and shift from justice and justice, justice and injustice paradigms to a broader vision, we can do that, too. And in in that sense, God is a co-author with us as we have as that grounds our hope for the future for a story that still is yet unfolding that we don't have to control. Right. Because. Right. And so uh, when the we, we pastors sat down and said, okay, who's going to do which one with Dr. Shive? I wanted this one because of that aspect uh, that, you know, we, that we still have hope. We still have an opportunity. We, you know, we, we can look at our story and woe is me and, and look down on ourselves and beat ourselves up. Um, but we know you're saying, no, no, we, we can revise, we can restore, uh, we can redeem, we can reconcile. And, and that, for me, that's, that's such a theological, such an important theological point mm-hmm. that, that um, if we can pay attention, pay attention to, to our story and, and then see what's redeeming, what's being redeemed through that. And that's, for me, that's an important theological thing, but I think it's also helpful as we think about restoring and mm-hmm. how to understand our story and writing it, like you said, with, with God. Yeah, I really think of this process of storing and restoring as as, as a pro- spiritual process, a spiritual growth process of spiritual growth. And it's a great quote from Helen Sapero, who has a little book on journaling as a spiritual practice. And she says, the more authentically we travel into our own lives and our own stories, the more we lay claim to God's image deep within us. And the more available we are to God, the more we are truly able to love ourselves, one another in the world. So this work of storying, I think, can, can promote our, our psychological and spiritual growth as God accompanies us in that process. That's absolutely beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Oh, Dr. Scheib, I'm so grateful for your time and your insight um, and uh, making yourself available to the St. Luke's community and, and all of our friends uh, who are joining us for our podcasts. Um, I appreciate your spirit uh, and uh, the, the work that you've brought um, to, to Emory, to Candler, and just countless uh, pastors and people uh, helping bring that, that space of healing and hope. And, and I pray that all of you listening uh, might um, dive further into this and uh, find yourself more authentically uh, traveling um, your own story and um, finding ways to lay claim to God's image as, uh, as uh, we heard that's deep within you. Uh, again, thank you, Dr. Scheib, for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, your blessing. So thank you all for joining us uh, for this uh, episode of uh, your week at St. Luke's. I look forward to seeing you all next week.